Chapter 18. Stephen Palmetti. Megan didn't sleep well that night. She stayed up for a long time reliving in her mind what had happened at dinner. She kicked herself for feeling so optimistic about the whole affair. Of course it was going to happen that way, she thought. Why should she have expected anything else? Still, though, what Linda had said to Howard about him being obsessed with finding her made Megan wonder. Though Howard had never really said anything about it, she had heard Rom talking to him about searching for someone on several occasions. Rom was always careful not to mention any names, and even then, Howard would usually get a little nervous and try to change the subject. Thinking back to the times she had heard them talk about it, Megan realized that she had always just assumed that they were talking about Howard's ex-wife. But for Linda to say she didn't exist, that didn't seem to make sense. Relaxation finally came when her thoughts turned to an almost forgotten memory of her mother taking her to the Tasty Freeze for ice cream on Friday afternoons, after school when she was little, when her entire world felt more colorful and more vibrant. In those days, she recalled going downtown felt like a special trip into the world's main street. TG&Y might as well have been Macy's in New York, and throwing breadcrumbs to the ducks at Ashley Pond was like a trip to Disneyland. She'd stayed there, sitting with her mother at a table in a tiny ice cream shop, feeling her closeness, and finally slipped into a comfortable sleep. Megan, you awake? The voice in the hallway was Charlie's. Megan opened her eyes once to see sunlight pouring in through her window. Yeah, she replied, her voice cracking a little. I need to take off. Sam's downstairs. It was the first time Charlie had spoken to her in days. Uh, okay, she looked at the clock. It was shortly after ten. A few moments later, she could hear the front door open and close, followed by the sound of his car starting and then driving off. She got up, dressed, and went downstairs to find Sam in the living room. The television was tuned to some bowling tournament, which Sam was obviously not watching. He was lying on his side, ear to the ground, playing with toy cars. He saw her come in and sat up. Megan, can I go outside? Charlie said I could go after you got up. Sure, Megan replied. Get a coat. Sam scooped up the cars and went to the closet. He pulled out his coat and then went out the front, letting the screen door slam behind him. Megan turned off the television and went into the kitchen to get something to eat. She wondered for a moment where everyone had gone, and then she recalled that Vicky had agreed to work a double shift today in order to have Thanksgiving off. She figured the rest of them were at work, too, until she had finished eating. It was only then that she remembered that Howard and Rom had gone to Albuquerque in response to the phone call Rom had received the day before. Thinking about the call, the mysterious she that Howard and Rom were off looking for, and tempted by the unusually empty house, Megan was suddenly overcome with curiosity. She felt like the universe owed her some answers, and Howard's room, which had never even remotely interested her before, today seemed like a treasure trove of secrets. She peered out the window and saw Sam in the yard, navigating his cars through the inch-high jungle of withering grass. Seeing that he was occupied, she walked up to the landing and stopped, straining her ears to make sure no one else was in the house. Confirming that everything was quiet, she gingerly stepped up to the hallway, leading to Howard's bedroom. She walked nervously past Rom's room and on to Howard's, leaning close to the door to make sure that no one was inside. She knew he wasn't here, but in her paranoia, she still imagined him inside. Very carefully, she turned the doorknob and pushed the door open. The room was dark, the thick curtains filtering out most of the sunlight. The bed was cleanly made and everything else was sparse and tidy. After a quick glance around, she opened the door further, and she let out the air she hadn't realized she was holding in her lungs. There was a desk under the window, and she walked to it, looking for a clue. 
On the wall above was a shadow box with a few pale blue and brown butterflies mounted inside. The top of the desk was nearly empty, save for the lamp, a clock, and an empty notepad and a tiny picture. Megan picked up the picture and looked closely. It was Howard's wedding photo. Howard, or at least a much younger version of him, was wearing a suit and had his arm around the waist of a beautiful bride, holding a modestly sized bouquet of flowers. They were both smiling genuinely, a light in their eyes which seemed to pour out of the old, worn, black-and-white photograph. While the man was unmistakably Howard, on a certain level, Megan didn't recognize him. The man in the photo was confident, happy, in control of his own life. The Howard she knew, the one sitting at the dining room table the previous evening while Linda stormed off, looked pale and beaten down in comparison. She hesitated, gazing at the picture. She had never seen him smile like that. His bride looked gorgeous. She was a picture of health and vitality, of happiness and love. Megan carefully replaced the picture. She felt awful setting it back on this lonely, sterile desk in this dark room, curious about what Howard thought about when he looked at it. She wondered if Howard's wife had left for the same reason Linda had. Why, she thought. What would be important enough to sacrifice what he had in this picture? She started opening the drawers in an effort to find out, but found nothing useful. One drawer was filled with canceled checks. Another was shoe polish, brushes, and rags. The long one in the center held pencils, pens, paper clips, and a ruler, and another looked to contain old tax forms. Remembering her situation, she looked up, walked to the door, and listened carefully through the silent house. The only sound she could hear was Sam's voice from the front yard, mimicking the squealing of tires and the screeching of brakes as he played. She walked over to Howard's closet, hoping to find something there, but she was stunned at how bare it was. There were clothes, shoes, and ties, but none of the usual build-up of clutter that every other closet in the world seemed to have. She was about ready to give up on finding anything when a box caught her eye just inside the closet door. It was a cardboard box covered with a wood grain pattern and it had a white labeling area marked F to G in thick black marker, but lazily scribbled out with a ballpoint pen. She stopped again, checking for any sounds, and pulled the box out. It felt about half full. She brought it out of the closet to the floor just outside, shielded from the open bedroom door by Howard's bed. Her hands shaking a little, she took a quiet breath and pulled off the lid. Inside she found an assortment of papers and newspaper clippings. The page on top of the pile was a lined paper, carefully ripped from a spiral notebook. On it, in Howard's handwriting, were written several dates and addresses. One was for a bag and save, 4901 McLeod Street, Northeast. Megan figured that was in Albuquerque. There was a date next to it, 5-1970. Several names and phone numbers, all of which looked like Albuquerque numbers based on the prefixes. One of them had the word manager written next to it, but was crossed out with different colored ink. Taking out the sheet of paper, she found a yellowed newspaper clipping with tiny pinholes in the corners as though it had been tacked to a bulletin board. Glancing up at the bedroom door first, Megan then looked back at the article and began to read. Man's claim, I jumped, survived. Los Alamos. Police say a man taken into custody on Thursday claims to have jumped from the Peggy Sue Bridge over Acid Canyon and survived the nearly 150-foot fall. The man, who identified himself as Stephen Palmetti, 34, of White Rock, told police that he was a longtime resident of the area and a Lassell employee. Police, however, say that neither Lassell nor the Zia Company had any record of him working for either employer. Palmetti was carrying no identification. Officers apprehended Palmetti after a White Rock resident reported the man trespassing in a neighbor's backyard. We were notified that he was looking through windows of a rental property on Todd Loop 
LAPD officer Kirk Rowe said. No damage was found to the home, and there was no evidence of an attempt to break in. The home was unoccupied at the time. When officers arrived at the scene, Palmetti claimed that he had lived at the residence, but that his possessions were missing. Police later contacted the owners of the home, who said they did not know Palmetti and had never seen him before. Asked about the man's alleged fall from the bridge, Rowe stated that Palmetti was given a medical screening and showed no physical injury. He told us that he had attempted suicide by jumping from the center of the bridge, but had lost consciousness during the fall and woke up uninjured, Rowe said. Palmetti was not intoxicated, but drug use has not been ruled out. The Peggy Sue Bridge, which reaches from a point northeast of the Los Alamos Jewish Center to a point west of the 2700 block of Orange Street, carries a natural gas line across Acid Canyon and is not open for pedestrian use. Megan hungrily rescanned the article. She had never heard any mention of anyone else who had jumped, and the name didn't sound familiar at all. She looked at the handwritten date at the top of the clipping, October 28, 1971. Thirteen years ago? Was that before Phil had jumped? Was this person the first? She looked at the box, wondering if there were any clues as to where Palmetti was now, but her curiosity had barely had a chance to swell when she saw the next news clipping in the box, this one smaller, less prominent, as though it had been shoved in a corner of some back page of the newspaper somewhere. Area man found dead. Los Alamos. Police found a man dead in his apartment on Monday after neighbors reported foul smells coming through the door into the hallway. Police estimate Stephen Palmetti, 34, of Los Alamos, had apparently shot himself in the head with a handgun between one to two weeks prior to his body being discovered. Palmetti had been taken into custody by police last October for trespassing, having claimed at the time that he had survived a suicide attempt by jumping from the Peggy Sue Bridge north of Canyon Road. Police are working to identify and contact family members as an investigation continues. Megan's mind struggled to fill in the many blanks. Did Howard know this man? Did Phil? The second article had a date written in the same handwriting, in pencil instead of pen, February 29, 1972. She looked at the first paragraph, dead in his apartment. His own apartment. Howard hadn't opened his boarding house for lost souls yet, she figured. Was Howard still married at the time? Did he even know about the bridge yet? She looked back into the box. One more newspaper clipping. This one's smaller still than the other two. Stephen Palmetti. Stephen R. Palmetti, 34, died on or about February 18, 1972, at his home in Los Alamos, New Mexico. A private memorial service was held outside the Los Alamos County Police Station on Wednesday. Mr. Palmetti was interred at Guajipine Cemetery. Palmetti has no known survivors. He died alone, she thought. The only people who even bothered with the funeral were the officers who had arrested him after he jumped. She reread the short obituary. No mention of where he was born, how he had lived his life, or what he had done. Of course, he had had a family, but that was before he had jumped. The bridge had taken all of it away from him. If he had died when he jumped off the bridge, she thought, almost angrily, at least he would have had a decent obituary. The rest of the contents of the box were three faded notebooks. The first two contained page after page of dense-looking equations. On every few pages, she found a diagram of sorts, some of which were graphs reminiscent of math homework. One page bore what looked like a simple drawing of the Peggy Sue Bridge and the canyon floor below it. There were measurements and calculations surrounding the drawing and filling in the spaces within it. As she flipped through, the pages flopped open to a green, folded topographical map kept between the pages. Megan opened it partway and saw the familiar arrangement of mesas and canyons that outlined her hometown. 
The bridge was marked in a bold red ink line. It was surrounded by carefully calculated curves that looked like the diagrams of magnetic fields she had seen in textbooks and film strips. She scooped up the third notebook and flipped through it idly, expecting to see the same sort of equations, but it was empty. Surprised, she looked back at the front page. Taped inside the front cover was a piece of tracing paper with what looked like a police sketch of a woman. The out-of-proportion face was framed with dark hair that fell just below the jawline. The drawing showed what looked like the hood of a sweatshirt cradled lazily on the woman's shoulders. The only thing that looked overtly remarkable was a carefully shaped dark spot on her left jaw. If anything, the drawing was notable for its lack of life. The eyes glared back at her lazily and soullessly. The first page of the notebook opposite the police sketch had an even stranger drawing. It was the front of a supermarket, four or five checkout aisles, complete with cashiers and various customers walking by. It had an odd quality, amateur yet meticulously crafted. She felt a pang of guilt in finding it as though it was never intended to be seen by anyone else. The large storefront windows in the background were empty, and there was a spot to the left where the paper was thinner, darkened from several apparent attempts to capture the figure coming in through the door. The poorly drawn cashiers focused quietly on the various strangely shaped objects moving toward them on the conveyor, unfazed by the ghosts struggling to emerge behind them. Suddenly the screen door at the foot of the stairs slammed. Her heart beating loudly, Megan quickly assembled the contents and put them back into the box. Megan? It was Sam's voice, moving into the living room. She put the lid back on the box and slid it back into its place in the closet. Megan, where are you? She hurried noiselessly to the bedroom door as she heard him go up the stairs on the other side. Megan! She tiptoed down to the landing. Sam, what's wrong? What is it? Sam came back down the stairs, clutching his toy cars, his face a little red from the cool air outside. There's a police officer outside. It's the one who let me ride in his police car and, uh... He was slightly out of breath, excited and distracted. Can I go get the police badge he gave me? Yeah, okay. Megan went down the stairs toward the front door and turned to look outside. Hi, Megan. Is Howard here? Officer Kirk Rowe was waiting on the porch. He was tall, with a lightish brown mustache and blue eyes that looked as though he once had a sparkle to them. Megan knew him well. She had spent more time than she liked to remember sitting in his office as he made phone call after phone call, trying to figure out what to do with her. Um, he and Rom went to Albuquerque for the day. It's just me and Sam. Oh, okay, Roe replied, looking up the street. Turning back, his face softened a bit. I had just wanted to see how Sam's holding up. Look, I didn't mean to scare him off or anything. I can just call Howard if... Oh, Megan interrupted, realizing now that Sam must have run inside before Roe had a chance to talk with him. He just wanted to go get the badge you gave him. Roe's face relaxed and broke into a smile. Oh, okay. I was wondering why I ran off so quick. Sam came bounding down the stairs, his badge in hand. Megan, can you put it on me? He exclaimed, stopping in front of her, but having trouble standing still. Yeah, okay, she replied. Let's go outside and do it. Hey, Sam, how's it going? Roe asked, while Megan pinned the badge to Sam's shirt. Are you making some good friends at school? Yeah, said Sam, looking slightly anxious at the sight of the sharp end of the pen. And here, too. Oh, yeah? Is Megan taking good care of you? And Charlie is, too. And Rom has video games. Oh, that's great. There you go, Megan said after she had gotten the badge pinned to his shirt. She could see now that his squirminess wasn't just related to the pin. He was trying to subtly hold his hand over his crotch and was bouncing tensely on one foot. Sam, do you need to go to the bathroom? Yeah, Sam responded, seeming to suddenly realize what his own body was telling him. 
Megan opened the screen door and he dashed in, running toward the living room first and then turning back and up the stairs. So he's adjusting okay then? Roe asked with a chuckle, stepping off the porch. Yeah, I guess, Megan responded, looking down. He and Charlie are best buddies, she said, a little resentfully. Roe didn't respond at first, looking out at the street. Then he turned to her. How are you doing, Megan? Fine, she sighed. Megan didn't really feel like going into details. What does he care, she thought. She figured he was just trying to make conversation. Roe took the hint, and Megan was grateful for it. It was something Howard never seemed to be willing to do. She sat down at the edge of the porch, listening to a dog barking a block or so away, and her thoughts drifted back to the box in Howard's closet. Suddenly she made the connection between Roe and the article. Did you know Stephen Palmetti? Roe was caught off guard. For a moment he just looked at her, slightly wide-eyed, looking for words. Um, he stammered then swallowed. How did you hear about... I overheard Howard and uh, Phil say his name. She could feel herself turning red and looked down. Stupid, she thought. Like he doesn't know you're lying. He's a police officer for crying out loud. Roe looked concerned for a moment. Is it something you've asked Howard about? Megan looked up again. He never tells me anything, she answered, irritated. It was true, of course, though, of course, she hadn't asked Howard about it yet. She had only discovered Palmetti's existence minutes before. But she knew Howard's response would be some version of maybe when you're older, and he'd skip right to the interrogation of where she had found Palmetti's name. It's just so hard, you know, being in the dark all the time, she continued, trying not to overplay it, but feeling nonetheless like she was making some progress. Roe relaxed, giving in easily. Palmetti was a jumper he said in a quieter, less formal tone. The first, as far as we know. What happened to him? It wasn't too long after I started on the force. We got a call that a man was trespassing at a house in White Rock. They weren't reporting a burglary, just that a man was acting strange, casing the house, but not breaking in. When we got there, Palmetti was agitated and confused, saying that he lived there, but that all of his possessions were missing. His patio furniture, his basketball hoop, he said his wife and kids were supposed to be there, but it was like they had moved out and someone else had moved in, even though he had just been there that morning. We calmed him down. He finally told us that he'd jumped off Peggy Sue Bridge that afternoon. He had tried to kill himself. But then he woke up in the clearing in his car. Well, he assumed it had been stolen, so he hitchhiked his way back to White Rock and found that everything was gone. And then he got this real wild look in his eyes and looked up at us and said, Am I dead? Have I died? He was white as a sheet. Did you believe him about jumping? Well, no, Roe looked apologetic. We just assumed he was either drunk or, or high. Really, he might as well have told us that he had just come back from Mars. The bridge story just made no sense. Megan first felt betrayed when Roe said this, but then realized that she would likely have thought the same thing if she didn't know the truth. It had taken some time for her to believe it herself, wondering at first if it was some bizarre, elaborately planned punishment in which her parents had somehow convinced all of her friends to participate. Megan was lost in thought for a moment as Roe appeared to be waiting for a cue to continue. In the silence, Megan heard the toilet flush upstairs. She looked up at Roe, wordlessly urging him to go on. Well, he continued, we took him into custody. We called the people in the house and they talked to the neighbors. They decided they didn't want to press charges, especially since he never broke in or anything. Of course, Palmetti passed a breathalyzer test, a drug test, and Roe paused for a moment, as if he wasn't sure whether or not to keep going. Then he pursed his lips, almost imperceptibly nodding, and looked at Megan. I asked him why he jumped, if 
figuring it was out of stress or something, but he said no, it wasn't. He wouldn't say why, but he made it sound like he was caught up in something bad, like his whole family was in danger. We tried to get him to explain what he was talking about, but it just got him worked up, and we didn't get any more answers. The screen door burst open, and Sam came running out. Watch this. Um, Sam paused and looked at Roe. What's your name again? It's Officer Roe, Sam. Watch this, Officer Roe, Sam continued, not missing a beat, and he flew his cars through the air toward the lawn. Yeehaw! He brought the cars to a landing in the grass and mimicked the screeching of brakes. Wow, called out Roe. Those are some fast cars. Yeah, they're police officers. They're going to catch a robber. You can watch if you want. Sam knelt down in the grass and began acting out the scene, more to himself than to his small audience. Megan seized the opportunity. So then, what happened to him? Roe broke off his gaze at Sam and looked up the street instead. The hospital couldn't find anything wrong with him that they considered treatable, and he wasn't a danger to anyone, so they released him. He looked at his hat and picked a piece of lint off the top. He came back to us, asking what he could do next. I took his case and spent a long time trying to find answers. I knew he had to be from somewhere. He had to have some family, some home. But obviously I got nowhere. We found him an apartment, and he worked for a temp agency for a while before hiring on with the county doing road construction. The work was way beneath his skills, but it was all we could find. And he needed the money since his bank accounts had all vanished. Apparently, he spent his evenings in the lab library, researching papers and harassing physicists, trying to figure out what was going on. I heard about all that, and after a while, I started to wonder if he was right about Peggy Sue. I did a little research of my own, but I couldn't find anything. I mean, there's nothing on the records about anyone jumping off Peggy Sue Bridge. He paused for a moment. But then, there wouldn't be. You know what I mean? Roe looked at his hat once more, fitted it carefully on his head, and took a deep breath. Stephen Palmetti killed himself a few months later. We didn't even find him until he hadn't shown up for work for a few days. Gunshot wound to the head. Rose stopped, looking down in reverence. I mean, don't get me wrong, I would never... Well, you know. But your heart goes out to him a little, right? He had no one. No one, you know? He looked up at Megan with a pained expression on his face. She was doing her best to fight back tears and said nothing for fear of letting them loose. She must have been doing a good job of it as Rose's expression changed into an apologetic one as though realizing he had just offended her. I mean, of course you know, he said, shaking his head. I'm sorry. No, no, Megan interrupted, trying to hide her shaking voice. No, it's not the same. I've got Charlie and Vicky and, and Howard. Yeah, I guess you're right. Roe looked ahead, and Megan wondered if he was holding back tears as well. After a moment, he spoke again. We had a memorial service for him there at the police department. I figured someone should do something, and by that time I realized that our search for the next of kin was going to come up empty. It wasn't much, but, well, I thought he deserved something. He did, Megan responded, almost under her breath. Thank you.